Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 3rd of December 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on. John the Baptist prepares for the coming of Jesus. Well, it is all too easy to allow the passage of time to allow us to forget people that we really shouldn't. So here is a photograph of someone really important in the history of this church, really important actually in the history of the Church of England and the church throughout the world, who is largely forgotten today. Who is he? Well, his name is Brian Green, and he came to this church at the age of 23 in 1924 to be curate here. And he started a Bible class for teenagers called King's Own, which then ran for 50 years. He was here from 1924 to 1928, but King's Own Bible class carried on for 50 years until 1974. Now, why was that significant? Well, it was for boys and girls together, which was unheard of at the time. But more significantly, over the years, it attracted huge numbers to this church. And it changed the lives of literally thousands of young people, some of whom are still with us today. Now, that was here at Christchurch. But Brian Green, in 1928, moved on. He went on to become vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton, the church in London. Later, he was vicar of St. Martin's in the Ring in Birmingham, where he had equally significant ministries. And for three months each year, Brian Green led international missions throughout the world, of a type that no one had really done before. And it started with a big mission to New York in 1948, where loads of Americans became Christians. And it was after that that Billy Graham referred to Brian Green as the world's leading evangelist. Now, of course, Billy Graham went on to become far more famous. But in the 1950s and 1960s, it was common to refer to Brian Green as the British Billy Graham, with thousands of lives changed through his ministry. So he is someone of immense significance that particularly here at Christchurch, we need to remember rather than forget. And if that applies to Brian Green, it applies even more to a biblical figure that we're thinking about in this series before Advent, John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, as many people already know, to prepare the way for Jesus. But what does that mean? What was it that made the ministry of John the Baptist important? And why during this season of Advent, when we prepare for the coming of Jesus, should we remember, rather than forget, the figure of John? Well, the answer, in a nutshell, is because John the Baptist came to remind people of why Jesus was needed. More specifically, John came to be the bridge between everything that God had done before in the Old Testament and Jesus. And it's by paying proper attention to John the Baptist that we can get, more than we would otherwise, things about Jesus that we need to understand. You see, Luke is unusual amongst the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, in that he doesn't mention Jesus until his 30 verses into the story. And we only hear about Jesus' birth after 80 verses, the 80 verses that make up the very long first chapter of Luke's Gospel. 
And that's because Luke wants us to understand the coming of Jesus in the light of the significance of John the Baptist. So right at the start of the story, we hear actually about three people. We hear that Herod is the king of Judea. And then we hear about John's parents. We hear about Zechariah the priest and his wife, Elizabeth. They're the three people that we immediately hear about. And both this and particularly the details that we're given sum up the problem that existed right at the end of the Old Testament. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're upright, they're devout in their desire to serve God, they're described as observing all of his commandments and regulations blamelessly. But despite this, Herod is on the throne. Herod is a false king, not only because he wasn't from the Davidic line that Israel's kings were meant to come from, but because he was a wicked tyrant. And symbolizing this tension, this plight of God's people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this righteous, devout couple, they can't have children, meaning that like Israel itself, they appear to have no future whatsoever. And as I say, this sums up the plight of Israel and therefore God's purposes at the end of the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. There were good and obedient people in Israel doing their best to obey God. There were plenty who weren't, but there were some good and righteous people. But evil and hardship still appeared to be in charge. With hope for that situation changing, hope for anything changing on a national or a personal level seeming very remote indeed. And that probably should immediately resonate with us. Because that's how we can very often feel, can't we? We can look at the world at the start of Advent 2023, and despite there being some good and godly people around, evil does, much of the time, appear to be well and truly in charge, doesn't it? That terrible war in the Ukraine continues with no particular signs that it's coming to an end, and all of its terrible wider effects continue as well. And of course, more recently, we've had that simply horrendous conflict beginning in Israel and Palestine. Particularly poignant, because that's the place where God once promised that he would be especially present. But it's not just on a national or international scale. In our personal lives, there can also be immense amounts of tragedy. People dear to us with terminal illnesses or terrible, seemingly intractable problems. Areas of tension or conflict within our lives, perhaps our work lives, perhaps our personal lives, that simply won't resolve. And dreams that we once had of something really fantastic that we hoped would happen in our lives, now seeming completely impossible. The Old Testament ends with all of this. And when the story of John the Baptist begins, it's still very much present. But it changes, doesn't it? And that change begins with the appearance of an angel. Despite what people might think, we don't get angels appearing all the time in the Bible. They're usually 
appearing at points where a vital new stage in God's plan is revealed, is unveiled. That's why these heavenly beings suddenly become present. It's because a new stage in heaven coming to earth is being unveiled. And that happens in this story, doesn't it? It happens when an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, as it turns out, appears to this priest, Zechariah. And he appears to Zechariah while he's performing his duties as a priest in the temple. And Gabriel, this angel, comes to tell Zechariah that Elizabeth, his wife, who was assumed to be barren, would bear him a son. And if that sounds rather a familiar storyline, it's because it is. It's following similar stories in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most famous, but far from the only one, is the story of Abraham and Sarah, where another couple advanced in years are promised and eventually receive, after a long wait, a son. As I say, it's not the only example. We get numerous examples of this in the Old Testament. We don't see it happening all the time, like the appearance of angels, but we see it at key moments when God is taking his covenant plan for rescuing the world forward in some new way. So why do we get this recurring storyline about couples who thought they couldn't have children suddenly being able to have them? Why do we get this so often within the Bible? It can seem rather insensitive to people who are in that situation today. Why is it there? Why does this theme keep recurring? It's for this reason. It's because God's plan is all about new creation. God's plan for rescuing the world is all about the bringing of life where none was present before. Now, of course, the ultimate demonstration of that, the most stupendous demonstration of that, was the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Day. But before that, it's flagged up in all sorts of ways. It's flagged up by Jesus' virgin birth. And before that, it's flagged up throughout the Old Testament and also with the conception of John, by these various episodes in the Bible where people who thought they couldn't have children, they couldn't sort of bear life as it were, finally, and after years of waiting, received those children. But the way that the conception of John shows an extra dimension to what had gone before is that reference that the angel makes to Zechariah that his son would have something very special about him. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, the angel says, even from birth. Now, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament, is present, but he is temporary. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament comes on particular people for a particular task, for a particular time, and then departs once that task is complete. But in this new era that was coming, it will be different. The prophet Joel in the Old Testament said that one day God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And John being filled with the Holy Spirit from birth showed that that time was now not far off. Not only was new life coming with Jesus, but a quality of life, a spirit-filled life, would finally bring the reality of heaven to earth and that's what the coming of Jesus at Christmas time is all about. We'll be singing lots of carols around Christmas time, 
And one of those carols is O Little Town of Bethlehem. And in, their, in that carol, there's a particular line that might especially resonate with us this year. It's this. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you or met in thee tonight. What that line is trying to express is that all that tension that I was speaking about earlier, that tension between our experience of the world as it is and our hopes for what the world might be, they're met by the coming into this world of Jesus. All of that heartbreak, all of those things that we desperately hope were different on both an international stage and a personal one, they find their answer in Jesus Christ. Not because change in those things will be instant, but because God in Jesus is bringing his light into the darkness to make things possible that weren't before. The reason more people come to church around Christmas time, the reason I think we give church a particular priority around Christmas time isn't just nostalgia, it's because it brings a deep level of hope. That's what brings people into this church at Christmas time, and that's why we rightly put so much effort into trying to make our Christmas services as special as possible. The reason why Christmas is a special time for both regular churchgoers and people in the wider world is because it brings hope. And retelling and rehearing the story of Jesus coming into this world brings us that hope. And attention to the story of John, which comes just before it, gives us clarity over what that hope actually is and what it comes to address. But the announcement of John's birth in this first chapter of Luke's Gospel also reminds us of two things that are needed to receive this hope. It reminds us of the need for repentance and it reminds us of the need for faith. It was because John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth that the angel told Zechariah that John would never drink wine or any other fermented drink. Why? Why was there this sort of stricture about alcohol? Because elsewhere in the Bible it is described as a good gift from God. Well, if John was to really embody the fully human experience that God was bringing, the things that often act as a rather poor substitute for this needed to give way. And alcohol very often can, as we know, be a substitute for a real quality of human experience. It can be something that is reached for in order to mask problems rather than to give us that fullness of life God wants us to have. It's a good part of God's creation, but very often it can be something that actually we run to in a wrong way. And when John was older, rather like the prophet Elijah, we're told, he would, repeat, he would preach repentance to people on a broader scale. We're told these words. He would exhort the people, like Elijah, as I say, to turn from selfishness, he'd turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and he'd also get people to repent from disobedience. 
He'd get them to turn from that. Repentance means literally turning around to the wisdom of the righteous. Why would he do this? So that he could make ready a people prepared for the return of the Lord. Now we tend to think of Lent, the period before Easter, as a time to reflect and a time to repent. But Advent should have that role as well. Particularly if there are things that we know we're trying to get meaning out of, which can't bear the weight of this, or if there's a pattern of selfishness that we know is present within our life. It's a good thing as we approach Christmas to reflect on this, on what we need to do and the adjustments that we need to try and make if we're going to be really ready for the coming of Jesus. One of the things that John the Baptist makes clearest is that the best possible preparation to receive God's gift of grace in Jesus is a repentance, a genuine desire to turn from those elements of our life that are destructive to both us and others. And to be open to all of this, repentance and the coming of Jesus, we need faith. Throughout the Christmas stories, the angels that appear constantly say, do not be afraid. I wonder whether you've ever noticed that. Throughout the Christmas stories, when the angels appear, whether it's to Zechariah, whether it's to Mary, whether it's to the shepherds, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. And that's because fear is very often the major factor getting in the way of us stepping into the new life that God is holding out to us. You see, it's much easier and much more comfortable for us to stick with what we know, isn't it? Even if we know that what we're familiar with is bringing us a diminished life experience, it's still much easier to stick with what we know. We've already been told that Zechariah was upright in the sight of God, observing his law blamelessly. But faced with this new thing that God was promising, Zechariah's faith failed him, didn't it? He couldn't believe that what was being announced to him could possibly happen. And that's why he was struck dumb, he was unable to speak until it actually happened. Now that wasn't an act of angry petulance on the point of part of Gabriel or God because Zechariah hadn't responded in the right way. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity for the next nine months for Zechariah to listen rather than speak and build up his faith in this fresh act of salvation that God was bringing or initiating through the coming of his son John and more ultimately, which would come through the one that John would prepare Israel to receive in Jesus. And again, during this slightly shorter period of Advent, it doesn't last nine months like uh, the time it takes for a baby uh, to grow, it's an opportunity for us to listen to God as well. Now that is unbelievably hard to do during Advent. There is one part of the year where we go mad with busyness. It is the time that coincides with Advent. And that, in truth, probably does more to undermine the meaning of Christmas than draw out its significance. But it is still possible. 
It isn't impossible in this mad season where there's so much business and rushing around. It is still possible to have those moments when, for whatever reason, silence is present and we hear the message again of God calling us to make ready for the coming of Jesus and everything that he represents. Silent Night is another carol that I'm sure we'll sing this Christmas time. And I think whoever wrote that carol, what they're trying to capture is the need for us to be quiet so that we can hear and we can see Jesus being revealed among us. And sometimes that message is conveyed by unlikely voices. First century Palestine was very much a man's world, and although Elizabeth has been mentioned in the story, and we're told that she's upright and blameless and so on, it's Zechariah, the man, her husband, who had the priestly role in the temple and to whom the angel Gabriel appeared. But once Zechariah was struck dumb, and once Elizabeth becomes pregnant, it's her who proclaims the truth of what God is doing we hear this woman's voice. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. Now, God, in sending John and ultimately in sending Jesus, was doing more than simply bringing personal help to Elizabeth, but he wasn't doing less than that. And those words that Elizabeth says, particularly in these days, shows that a new era had broken into the world, making things possible that weren't before. And ending this talk this morning with reference to Elizabeth's role in the story takes us back to where I started at the beginning. Paying attention to those that we might forget. Around this Advent time and Christmas time, it might be that there are unlikely sources that speak God's word about Jesus to us. It might be that we go to a children's nativity play where we've got young children acting out the Christmas story and as we watch and listen in the quietness or relative quietness, we hear God speaking to us. God often uses the most unlikely sources to speak afresh to his people. So are you willing this Advent to listen afresh to God's call, expressed in the coming of John, expressed in the words of Gabriel and Elizabeth, of the new life that God wants to bring to you and to all of us this Christmas time through the coming of Jesus Christ? Let's say a short prayer. Father God, at the start of this season of Advent, we open our hearts to you, Lord God, and we ask that through all the busyness of Christmas and the build-up to it, you would still our hearts, Lord God. You would help us to be attentive and open to you. And we pray that you would guide us to a 
a fresh openness to you and everything that you bring us through the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.